0: A reading from first Kings 18 verses 17 through 39. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? He answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, have all Israel assemble for me at Mount Carmel with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the Israelites and assembled the prophets at Mount Carmel. Elijah then came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets number 450. Let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire is indeed God. All the people answered, well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, then call on the name of your God, but put no fire to it. So they took the bull that was given them, prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, crying, O Baal, answer us but there was no voice and no answer. They limped around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud, surely he is a God. Either he is meditating or he has wandered away or he is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Then they cried aloud and as was their custom, they cut themselves with swords and lances until the blood gushed out over them. As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no answer, no voice, no response. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come closer to me, and all the people came closer to him. First he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Then he made a trench around the altar, large enough to contain two measures of seed. Next, he put the wood in order, cut the bowl in pieces, and laid it on the wood. He said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And again, he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time so that the water ran all around the altar and filled the trench also with water. At the time of the offering of the oblation, the prophet Elijah came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your bidding. Answer me, O Lord, answer me so that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, And that you have turned their hearts back then the fire of the lord fell and consumed the burnt offering the wood the stones and the dust and even licked up the water that was in the trench when all the people saw it they fell on their faces and said the lord indeed is god the lord indeed is god
1: May the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Today's Bible reading from the narrative lectionary. Thank you, Rhonda, for reading it to us so beautifully. Uh, But the reading I think stopped uh, one verse too early. Where we left the story was where every children's Bible that I remember from my childhood and every Sunday school class that I've ever been involved with, we left it where they always leave the story with the glorious fire from heaven descending and consuming the soaking wet offering that Elijah had faithfully prepared while all the people fall down on their faces and worship the Lord as God. My question is, do you know what happens next? Let me read the next verse for you. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 40. Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. Then they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the Wadi Kishon and killed them there. And my question for us this morning, in a world of killing is this, who does God want to die? Who does God want to condemn? Today is the fifth of November. It's bonfire night, a day of fire and death, a fitting day for the lectionary to give us the Bible reading of Elijah's great bonfire on Mount Carmel. Say the old nursery rhyme with me if you know it. Remember, remember the 5th of November, gunpowder, treason and plot. I see no reason why gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Various versions of this rhyme are available, and I discovered this week that it has its origins in a poem by John Milton, better known for writing uh, his epic poem Paradise Lost. But the point is always the same in the different versions, which is that on bonfire night in England, the fifth of November, we gather joyfully to burn an effigy of Guy Fawkes. Remembering his treasonous act in conspiring to blow up the king. So I did a bit of digging. I thought, who was Guy Fawkes? The real Guy Fawkes was executed at the age of 35 in January 1606, uh, and he was executed just down the road from here in Westminster. He had a fairly distinguished military career and uh, became involved with a small group of English Catholics. Those of you who remember your history will know that there was a big power play at that point between the Catholics and the Protestants that kind of went one way and then the other with successive monarchs. And he kind of became involved with this small group of Catholics who planned to assassinate the Protestant King James by blowing up the Houses of Parliament with King James inside them. His Uh, Fate is well known, he gets executed, although ironically he dies by hanging and not by burning. But in celebration of his failure to overthrow the King, his failure to blow up the Houses of Parliament, Londoners were encouraged to light bonfires on each 5th of November, provided that, and I quote, this testimony of joy be carefully done without any danger or disorder. So it's good to know that health and safety legislation was alive and well in the early 17th century. In fact, so keen were Parliament to ensure that Guy Fawkes's Fawkes's treachery was not forgotten, that an act of Parliament was passed which designated each 5th of November as a day of thanksgiving for the joyful day of deliverance. And this act remained in force until 1859. So the people who founded this church would by law have had to light bonfires on the 5th of November. Guy Fawkes night bonfires were accompanied by fireworks from the 1650s onwards, and it quickly became the custom to burn an effigy on the bonfire, sometimes of Guy Fawkes himself, but other other signs of other popular villains, uh, including a a good one, apparently was to burn an effigy of the Pope. This guy, as it came to be known is these days, of course, normally uh, created by children from some old clothes, maybe some newspapers and a mask. But the real Guy Fawkes has had something of an interesting afterlife, uh, being variously hailed as a traitor, a martyr, a political rebel and a freedom fighter. As the saying goes, one man's terrorist is another man's hero. If you've ever seen the 2006 film V for Vendetta, this is a film in which some vigilante uh, rebels Um, are taking a stand against a right-wing dystopia and the leader does so whilst wearing a Guy Fawkes mask and this has led to something of a sort of resurgence of sympathy for Fawkes and the adoption of the same mask by the hacker group Anonymous has contributed to this with Guy Fawkes these days in some people's eyes at least now being viewed as a figure of kind of righteous anti authoritarianism more folk hero than folk demon well i'm certainly not defending him here i'm just observing that this is the way in which his legacy has been reinvented and so we come to today to bonfire night 2023 and i wonder who you might imagine on the bonfire this evening probably i'm guessing not the pope he seems great to me maybe not even guy fawkes himself but i wonder in our world who the good people of england might vote to put on a bonfire this evening who is the demon That you would like burned away. Maybe, maybe some global political tyrant. Maybe some figure of popular hatred. Maybe someone convicted of some terrible crimes. There are those living in our city today who are scared for their safety because others have been publicly threatening them, threatening their lives. We live in a world of anti-semitism and Islamophobia, a world of racism, of fear and condemnation of the other, in a world where some people believe that God is telling them to kill other people. Just this week, I attended the Mayor of Camden's Interfaith Reception. By the way, if you haven't been in the refurbished Camden Town Hall, uh, try and find an opportunity, it's beautiful. But we were there and we were hearing about people in the communities of the borough in which this church is located are living in fear, afraid to walk the streets of our city because of their clothing, or their skin colour, or their facial characteristics, afraid that these things will mark them out as targets of violence in November 2023 in London. And so I repeat my question, who does God want to die? Who goes on our altars of sacrifice to be consumed by the holy purifying fire from on high? And I'm sure some of you will be answering in your minds, maybe most of you well, no one. We don't want to condemn anyone. All we want is for the killing to stop. And good for you. That's what I want too. Except, my question remains, do we a commitment to absolute nonviolence to the stopping of killing is very hard to maintain in our world as remembrance next sunday is going to remind us sometimes even the most liberal and pacifist minded amongst us longs for the violent and aggressive enemy to be defeated which usually means that it is now their turn to die and so i repeat my question who would you place on the fire if you're really honest about it Come back with me in time a little bit before Guy Fawkes to shrove Tuesday 1497 come back with me to Florence where supporters of the local Dominican friar collected thousands of household objects and burned them in the public square. This bonfire of the vanities, as it came to be known, was focused on objects that might tempt one to sin, including vanity items such as mirrors cosmetics fine dresses playing cards musical instruments other targets were books manuscripts of songs artworks paintings sculptures all burned in the public square in florence and this theme of Burning things to purify society has a long tradition in both history and literature. I remember for my GCSE English studying Ray Bradbury's sci-fi novel Fahrenheit 451, which depicts a, a dystopian McCarthyite America where books have been outlawed and firemen don't put out fires. They light them. They burn the books. From there, to the real book burnings of Nazi Germany and the ideological repressions of the Soviet Union, burning to purify is as much a part of our contemporary world as it was in ancient Florence, as it was in ancient Israel. Even within our own Baptist family, we are beset by arguments about purity. Who does God approve of and who does God condemn? The divisions around LGBTQ inclusion drive us into camps. And in a situation that is, I think, somewhat analogous to the standoff between Elijah and the prophets of Baal and Asherah on Mount Carmel, there are many praying fervently for God's purifying fire to descend once more on our Baptist family. And I'll ask again, who does God God really want to condemn? In a world of killing where societies and communities assuage their collective guilt by scapegoating the vulnerable, by marginalizing the already marginalized, we need an urgent answer to this question. And it's a question that runs through the Hebrew Bible as story after story explores the idea of whether god really is for one group and against another or whether maybe god is for all people and is against evil and this is an important distinction because it decouples the issues of evil and purity from a fixed association with specific groups or communities of people Within the Hebrew Bible, there were some who believed that holiness was the distinctive preserve of that subset of humanity known as the people of God. And that the role of religion within Hebrew society was to maintain the purity of the people of Israel whilst opposing all those who did not worship the Lord as they worshipped. We saw this division last week in our sermon around the religious wars that ended up dividing Israel into north and south after the death of Solomon. But there is a counter tradition within the pages of the scriptures, which asserts that the purpose of God's calling one people to be set aside as God's people was not to condemn the rest of humanity, but to bless it. And this is the tradition that casts God's people as a light to the nations, a beacon of hope in an otherwise dark world. And which of these traditions we embrace is important because it tells us something profound about how we see ourselves as the people of God in our time and in our context. Are we those called by God to be set aside, to condemn the world by our purity, to show the world that the wages of sin is death and to show that by our holiness? Certainly, many Christians have taken that view. Standing with Elijah in the light of the holy righteous fire, while those who relate to God differently are condemned and burned before their eyes. This, my friends, is not the path to God that I embrace. And I want to suggest that it's not the Baptist way, or at least that it shouldn't be. And it certainly isn't the Bloomsbury Baptist way. You see, we stand in a tradition that resists those who would tell other people whether they are acceptable to God or not, we stand for freedom of religion for an open path to God's that creates space, even for those with whom we might want to disagree. The early Baptists went to prison here in London for their refusal to say the creeds. And this is why we resist creedal forms of religion that tell people what to believe and then condemn those who choose to believe differently. The early Baptists were at the forefront of religious freedom, with Thomas Helwes famously writing to the king, demanding freedom, not just for Baptists like himself, but also for Muslims, for Jews and for atheists too. He died in Newgate prison for this. Because King James, yes, that same King James, who executed Guy Fawkes, had decided before God that he was the sole determiner of religious orthodoxy and that all who disagreed with him were worthy of punishment. But who does God want to condemn? Did God want the prophets of Baal and Asherah to be put to death? nine hundred and fifty women and men? Did God want Guy Fawkes to be executed? Did God want King James to perish in an explosion? Did God want Thomas Helwis to die in prison? Did God want the vanities of Florence burned? Did God want the books of Nazi Germany burned? Did God want more than 1,400 Jewish people to die in a terror attack at the hands of Hamas last month? Does God want the civilian Palestinian population in Gaza to be displaced and bombed? Does God want the Israeli settlers in the West Bank? Does God want the Palestinian suicide bomber in a marketplace in Jerusalem? Does God want Putin to successfully annex Ukraine? Does God want the Ukrainian defenders to liberate their country? Does God want the Taliban to rule Afghanistan? There are those who would say a resounding yes to each of these. Although I suspect there's no one who would say yes to all of them. But my suspicion is that God wants none of this and that those who claim to kill in God's name are always wrong. In fact, I suspect that those who kill are always wrong, even when they do so for the very best of intentions. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, reflecting on his participation in the plot to assassinate Hitler, couldn't convince himself that killing even such a tyrant as Hitler was within God's will. He said, when a man takes guilt upon himself in responsibility, he imputes his guilt to himself and no one else. He answers for it. Before other men, he is justified by dire necessity. Before himself, he is acquitted by his conscience. But before God, he hopes only for grace. The fire from heaven on Mount Carmel did not consume the prophets of Baal and Asherah. It consumed the wood of Elijah's offering. The killing was all Elijah. Those who claim to act on God's behalf, to speak God's words, to interpret God's will, they're not always right. And this is as true for the saints and prophets in Scripture as it is for us. If we are seeking God's will in our troubled times, I think we need to look first to God's revelation in Jesus, to the one who resisted the path of violent struggle, the one who welcomed those whom others would exclude and in jesus's parables he often mentions fire as an agent of god's judgment and a careful reading of these parables reveals that god's judgment is always against the principalities and powers of evil against the structures and systems of oppression it is these that god's fiery fury burns away God's anger is never directed to people, but always to those ideologies and philosophies that make people less than the beloved human beings they were created to be. God's love for humanity, dare I suggest it, is absolute, just as God's judgment on evil is absolute. Last week Udoka introduced us to a poem And I want to close now by reading it again. It's a poem by Ilya Kaminsky from the book Deaf Republic. At the trial of God, we will ask, why did you allow this? And the answer will be an echo. Why did you allow this? A moment of reflection.
2: Let us pray. Dear Lord, as we come together for this prayer, terrible wars are still raging in Palestine, Ukraine, and in other forgotten countries. So many innocent people suffer, and we don't see an end to it. Trapped in never-ending cycles of retribution, persuaded that only our own deeply held views are righteous and justify all means, we keep perpetuating violence, sometimes in your name. As we despair and turn to you looking for answers, let us recall, as in the poem, the echo to our question. Why did we allow all this? Dear Lord Prince of Peace, this is not what you want. You teach us love and violence and nonviolence. We pray that with your help, we may find this path and be true actors of peace. We pray that you console those who suffer and grieve, and offer the courage and the wisdom to leaders to stand for reconciliation and building a future of justice for all. Dear Lord, creator of our world, this week again, as strong storms battered our coasts and knocked down trees and houses, we are reminded of the increasingly broken climate patterns. While the world continues to indulge on unsustainable levels of emissions at the risk of making this planet inhabitable. And again, we hear the echo. Why did we allow all this? Dear Lord, this is not what you want. We pray for those who lost everything, and for those affected by climate change. You ask us to take care of your creation. Help us in tending the earth like wise gardeners carefully choosing the food and the goods we buy, especially in this coming Christmas period, and act as responsible citizens. Dear Lord of Compassion, we cross so many homeless people in our streets, cold and miserable, while we are glued to our phones, convinced that our lives are more important and that we cannot do anything about it. Why did we allow all this? This is not what you want. We realize that it is our indifference and passive acceptance of inequality that has enabled this world of individualism to flourish. But you tell us about a different path. Love your neighbor as yourself. So help us to listen to the people around us, to meet our neighbors, to be truly available and share our burdens and joys. Dear Lord, in these times more than ever, we pray for a better world, less violent and more inclusive, where every voice is heard with a true community spirit. Help us to be ambassadors of your message of love in our everyday lives. We pray for this church and we give thanks for the sermon, for the songs and the music, for all the people who took part in the service and for the shared refreshments or meal after the service. We pray for each one of us, you know our sorrows and worries give us strength and courage for this coming week, and that we may walk in your path. In the name of Jesus,
0: amen.